In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we dissected the initial theory into Charles Self's murder. Right from the start, the detectives were convinced he was killed by a young male prostitute who fled through Charles's kitchen window. But what if they were wrong? Totally impossible. Preposterous that anybody would even come up with that theory. They couldn't do it. Physically impossible for anybody to get through. We also looked at other potential leads, which included the infamous Gubu killer, Malcolm MacArthur. Certainly journalists, and I think the guards, had a look at that to see, is this a factor in this case? I mean, it wasn't. And we learned about two other gay men who were murdered in 1982. The defence of gay panic was successfully raised when John Roach's killer stood trial, while all five of the so-called queer bashers who beat Declan Flynn to death walked free from court. All of the sentences were suspended by Mr Justice Gannon. Now what this means is that if they don't get into trouble with the police during the period of their suspension, they will not serve any detention for depriving Declan Flynn of his life. In this, the final episode of Inside the Crime, we're going to turn our attention to one of the more interesting persons of interest. Bertie. We'll also pore over the findings of a cold case review into Charles's murder. Something was missed in 1982 and a much clearer picture would eventually emerge through the fog of time. Looking back over the evidence and after speaking to some of those closest to Charles and closest to the case, a number of anomalies sprang to mind. This one might seem insignificant, but bear with us. Hey Ash, how's things? Not bad, how are you? Good, good. Um, I've had a thought. Um, remember Adam Bailey told us that Bertie couldn't get a dial tone when he went to call for an ambulance after he found Charles's body? Yes. Well, I know this might seem daft and probably a long shot, but Alan also said there were a number of unanswered phone calls to the Muse not long before Charles came home. I assume that was Christine, so... We know from speaking to Bill Maher that Charles wasn't the best at paying his phone bill, so it's probably true that Bertie couldn't get a dial tone. But I wonder if you know somebody that could tell us if you could still receive a call if you were cut off. In other words, would those unanswered calls have rung out in the muse? Does that make sense? So we need someone who worked in telecoms, an engineer from the 80s. Yes, if you could magic one of them up. I just want to know if your landline was cut off in 1982 because you hadn't paid the bill, would you still be able to receive calls? I think I know someone. I thought you might. Leave it with me. Give me a couple of hours and I'll be back to you. Great. If you want to do that, and I'll check in with Christine and just see if she remembers whether she got a ringtone when she tried calling the muse and we can touch base later. Okay, sounds good. Talk to you then. So as we mentioned in an earlier episode, Christine Falls was due to move in with Charles just for a while until she found her own place. She said she tried to call Charles on the night of the murder. So I went back to ask her if she could remember if those calls connected. 
the night that he uh, died, I had actually been uh, ringing him in those days in a lot of uh, flats because, of course, there was no mobile phones. You'd have the old black uh, telephone with the push A um, for money to go in, push B for return. And I had to go into the main house of my landlord to use the phone. And I was ringing him. I wasn't too surprised that um, uh, he wasn't there because he was he was always out. Were you due to meet him that day or maybe the day beforehand? And I think you were quite busy with work. That's right. I was um, well, I was supposed to uh, move in that that evening. Yes. OK. And when you say you made these uh, phone calls, can you remember what time that was at, roughly? Um, now, it is so long ago, I can't pin down in terms of accuracy what time. Um, it was the evening, I know that. And I tried several times. And I think the last time I tried was quite late. It was around midnight, possibly later than that. But I cannot remember the exact time. Um, but it was that, that, that evening. OK. According to the original investigation file there were two calls placed at midnight and at 20 past 12 does that Ah, kind of sound about right that sounds absolutely about right yes and and i know and i know i appreciate we're going back a long time but can you remember if those calls connected oh yes i mean there was ring 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 yes absolutely and did somebody pick up the phone no 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 so on both occasions the call just rang out it just rang out absolutely I didn't get through. So if Christine called twice after midnight, Bertie Tyra would have been there when the phone rang. That's assuming the calls would have connected on the other end. Ashley is checking that out. Again, Bertie didn't live there. He couldn't get home because of the big snow, so he was staying with Charles. They were both set designers at RTE. He bumped into Charles at work earlier that day, at about four in the afternoon. According to Bertie, that was the last time he saw him alive. He left Orti at about 11 o'clock and went straight back to the Mews, where he watched a movie on his own before going to bed. The next thing he knows, he was awoken by a man with dark, curly hair who walked into his room at about two or half past two. He said he slept through the rest of the night. Charles was the victim of a ferocious and frenzied knife attack he couldn't have gone quietly. The muse was turned upside down during an apparent struggle, and yet Bertie heard nothing. Bill Maher found that hard to believe. I was very surprised at that, because the house was so small. And on the night in question, Bertie was staying in the smaller of the two rooms, so the room that you used to rent for six months in the muse, that's where Bertie was staying? Yeah. Okay. I mean, up in my bedroom, if somebody was playing a record downstairs, you could hear it. So it, it always surprised me to be told that Charles died at the end of the stairs, that Bertie didn't hear him, you know. The place, I believe, was trashed, so I found that surprising. And and just so I'm clear in my mind's eye, his room would have been the first room that you'd encountered going up those stairs? Yes. Okay, so not far from where Charles... Um, would have been killed? No, it would have been like just at the top of the stairs, basically, turn right and in the door. It's funny looking at the house now in 2022, there seems to have been some refurbishments. There's certainly double glazed windows. That wouldn't have been the case, I'd imagine, back in the 1980s. So sound would have travelled through that house quite easily. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's even more remarkable about Bertie not hearing anything is that a 70-year-old woman who lived in a muse across the courtyard did hear something. Charles's neighbour, Mary Liddell, was disturbed sometime between 3 and 4am by the sound of a stone bench being dragged over to the back wall. Bertie didn't hear that either. And here's another thing. Remember the ligature that was tightly wound around Charles's neck? It's a cord off a dressing gown. Parts of that cord found tight legs one of the chairs in the living room. And whether that was part of some sexual act or whether it was part of the murder, we could never speculate. As we know by now, that cord was from Charles's flatmate's red dressing gown, which used to hang on a little hook on the back of the bathroom door. The bathroom was upstairs, wedged between the two bedrooms. So to retrieve it on the night of the murder, someone would have had to walk past the room where Bertie was sleeping to get to the bathroom. But again, Bertie didn't hear a thing. Whatever about that, given that such a vicious and violent murder took place just below where his supposedly soundly sleeping head lay, it just seems incredible and almost unbelievable that he didn't hear a peep from downstairs. I asked Alan Bailey if he thought it odd too. I did. I did. Um, as I said, the crime itself is absolute overkill. The ferocity of the assault, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't have been done quietly, you know. Um, the stuff being knocked over in the sitting room and records being strewn around the place and all that, it's, it, it's, difficult, to, it's difficult to think it all been done in peace and quiet of the night, you know. Yeah, and Bertie was the one who found Charles's body at the bottom of mm-hmm. the stairs and you spoke about how Charles's body as it lay effectively blocked the opening of That's that right, door yeah. for an intruder to leave. How did Bertie leave the house to raise the alarm? Okay, so Bertie, Bertie when he came down the stairs and found the body, the first, his first reaction was to run into the sitting room to pick up the phone. When he picked it up, he couldn't get a dial tone. So he ran back out and pulling and pulling the door open it wide enough to photographs of the scene the door's ajar by about maybe a foot okay mm. so he managed to he managed open to it enough so that yeah, he could yeah. he could but squeeze it, out the door had been closed unsurprisingly after finding Charles's body and raising the alarm Bertie sat down with the detectives to tell them what he heard and saw he had nothing to offer on the former but drew a sketch in relation to the latter the curly haired stranger what is somewhat surprising, though, given the circumstances, is what Bertie did next. I mean, obviously, we were all wondering on the day that, that we heard the news where Bertie was. This is Alan Farkerson. You may remember that in 1982, he was working with both Charles and Bertie in Ortiz's design department. We knew he was staying with Charles because of difficulties in getting through snow to to his Wicklow hideout and he appeared at about three o'clock or so and I think his way of dealing with what had happened was kind of turning detective. So just a few hours after finding Charles's bloodied body at the bottom of the stairs Bertie went into work and as Alan said he was playing detective trying to figure out who did it. The real detectives were doing the very same and it wouldn't be long before they came looking for Bertie again. He was, you know, more than willing to go back to the guards and, and to 
to help them in any way possible. And then, you know, it might have been a week later or less when he was asked to go for another interview. I think to Donnybrook, but from Donnybrook, they took him to another guard station way away, which was obvious if somebody's coming looking for him in two hours' time or whatever. And he, I think he did about four hours of interrogation, basically. Now, I'm not 100% mm-hmm. true about that, but I know he was invited to one guard station and then brought to another. I think it was during that time that he did the sketch. And he had already said that at some stage during the night, he was aware the door opened and somebody who he saw said, sorry, wrong room, and closed the door. During his interview, a guard opened the door, said, sorry, wrong room, and closed it again. And then Bertie was told to describe him or draw him, I can't remember which. So it was to test the accuracy. Yeah, absolutely which he did quite accurately. When you say that Bertie came into work at three o'clock in the afternoon, was that the day that he had discovered the body? Yeah, he was with the guards up to that point. It was three or four in the afternoon, I think, before we saw him. Okay. Because we were all obviously very concerned about him. And and how was Bertie? Well, he was obviously very shaken to find that. Um, I believe at, at the bottom of the stairs and all that followed. And then to be isolated, I suppose, too, for the best part of the day with, with, to be fair, some obvious questions to answer. So he was in not a good state when, when he arrived in. Like Charles, Bertie Tyra was also born in England. His parents named him Bertram, but everyone called him Bertie. He grew up in Chingford, which is in Essex, just outside London. Unlike Charles, Bertie seemed to enjoy the quiet life. Before moving to Ireland in the mid-1970s, he'd been living in a cottage in Canterbury. And his Irish home was a cottage too, at the mouth of the Avoca River in Arklow County, Wicklow. And that's where he chose to see out his retirement. But the man who headhunted Charles from the BBC had other ideas, and when he got wind that Bertie was in Ireland, he convinced him to design a show for RTE. Bertie came out of retirement and became a full-time member of the design team. Aside from being colleagues and fellow countrymen, Charles and Bertie didn't have a lot in common. In fact, Bill Maher didn't think they'd much of a relationship outside work. I, I couldn't say I knew, knew him at all. No, I didn't know him socially. I, I just uh, somebody come home and like me say asleep on the couch. You know, I never saw him in the bar. I think once I saw him in the bar. Mm-hmm. Um. And what kind of a relationship did he and Charles have, you know, aside from being work colleagues and him staying there occasionally? I wouldn't have thought there was much, much to it. Wouldn't have thought there were, over, I'd say it was a work relationship, probably. At the time of his death, Charles was 32. Bertie was 66. So that age gap could explain their very different lifestyles and why they didn't really socialise together. It doesn't explain everything about their relationship, though. Like, why did Charles let him stay at the Muse? That could be down to his generous and kind-hearted nature. And in an earlier episode, Bill suggested Charles mightn't have enjoyed being on his own, so maybe he was happy to have someone around while his flatmate was away. But some of those questioned during Charles's murder investigation gave the detective some real pause for thought. 
In one statement, Bertie was said to leech off Charles. He was described as mean as sin, which was in stark contrast to Charles's open-handedness. One of those interviewed even suggested that he had some sort of a hold over Charles. The detectives were told he used to treat the muse as if it was his own, often helping himself to the contents of his well-stocked drinks cabinet. In one statement, Bertie was portrayed as a nasty drunk. Interestingly, it emerged that he and Charles had a heated row the night before the murder on the Tuesday night. I asked Bill if it came up when he met Charles for a few cheeky drinks on the Wednesday afternoon. Was that something that he spoke about over lunch with you or over drinks? I think there was some mention of it, but I I don't remember it being, uh, it doesn't stick out in my mind as being a major incident as such. It's funny you say that because it was described as a violent row. The catalyst for the argument, um, apparently Charles had become upset and annoyed that Bertie had brought back a man to the house. Would Bertie have done that? Did did Charles mention anything about that in your conversation? I honestly can't remember. Uh, it wouldn't have been a thing that Bertie would normally have, normally have done. I think maybe once he brought, I saw him in the house with with somebody else. But uh, I honestly can't remember. I, I know there was something. They had roused because uh, Bertie had come out and hit some of Charles's booze and Charles had get annoyed about that. That's the only thing I can ever really remember him being irritated about. I think he might have mentioned to me that he was going to take the key back. So Bill doesn't remember Charles telling him about this row with Bertie, but he has a vague memory of him wanting to take his key off him. In fairness to Bertie, that could have been due to Christine's imminent move. Although others had keys too, under what seemed to be an open-door policy at the Muse. We've been told the two designers had a blazing row after Bertie brought someone home. Apparently this was a stranger he'd just met on the street. We know Charles wouldn't have approved. He was very cautious about who he brought back. Bill said so himself, once bitten, twice shy. I think he had brought somebody back before I knew him and, and he got robbed and uh, he was nervous. He was certainly nervous about uh, bringing somebody into the house that he didn't know or who didn't know somebody who knew them. So how would Charles have reacted if Bertie did bring a stranger home? He wouldn't have been happy about it, but would he have said something, done something? Through chats with those closest to him, he didn't strike me as a shrinking violet and Christine also remembers him as someone who let his feelings be known. He really didn't give a damn about holding his opinion, if you like. But he was very straight. Bench knew where he stood with him at any given time. So if Charles did come down hard on Bertie over bringing a stranger back to the Muse, how would Bertie have felt if Charles did the very same thing the following night? Without casting aspersions, a question mark hung over Bertie's version of events. The question had to be asked. So I put it to Alan Bailey. Was he ever questioned as a suspect? Well, I wouldn't say a suspect, but certainly a person of interest. He certainly, you'd have to look at him and say, did you not hear, how could you not hear something like this, you know? And what was his explanation for that? That he's asleep. And this is why he said then this description of the man walking into the room and all his deepest sleep. I wonder, did you, with all your years of experience, find it unusual that a 70-year-old woman across the courtyard could hear a racket downstairs. Yeah, that's, you're saying to yourself, 
that was an un- one of the unusual aspects of it. You'd have to say to yourself, is it possible in a muse house that size that you have a man being slaughtered virtually downstairs and a man laying in bed upstairs not hearing it? It's hard to believe Bertie didn't hear anything that night. But is it unbelievable? As well as a colleague, Alan Farkasen considered Bertie a friend. They knew each other extremely well. So I asked him what he thought about it. I didn't really think about it. But yeah, it must have been quite a struggle and presumably there would have been screaming. And given, I suppose, Bertie's advanced years, did you hear of any hearing difficulties or...? He, he was somewhat hard of hearing. Would he and Charles have been very friendly? Yeah, yes. And did you know about a row that they apparently had the night before? No. Was there ever a suspicion that Bertie had more to do with it than he was telling Garthi or knew something that he hadn't shared? Never. I don't think it would have occurred to anybody, certainly in the design department, that that could have been the case. I'm in Marconi House, the home of News Talk. Ashleen has managed to find out whether a call could have been placed to a cut-off landline in 1982. Hey, Ashleen. Hi. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good. How did you get on? So I went looking for a telecoms engineer who was working in the 1980s, and I found one. Here's what I learned. Let's say Charles didn't pay his bill and we'll call it a first offence, or his previous bill had been paid. In that case, the customer was put on what was called an outgoing service barred. That was exactly what it said in the tin. You could not make outgoing calls on your first unpaid bill. But you were still able to receive calls. So, Bertie wouldn't have gotten a dial tone when he picked up the phone that morning to ring 999. But, eight or nine hours earlier... Christine would have been able to dial in and the phone would have rang in the living room. So Christine's two attempted calls to the muse on the night of Charles's murder would have connected. Bertie went to bed at roughly the same time she made the first call. The phone was on a small table not far from the TV that Bertie had been watching a movie on. Why didn't he answer? Assuming he'd already gone to bed, perhaps he didn't hear it. Perhaps his hearing was that bad. Although, you'd imagine the sound of an old phone ringing downstairs would pale in comparison to the dying screams of a man under attack. At all times, Bertie insisted he didn't hear anything. That might have raised a few eyebrows, but in 1982, he was considered a witness, nothing more, never a suspect. The investigation rumbled on, but within six months, the Charles Self murder was added to the stack of all the other unsolved case files, and it would be over 20 years before someone blew the dust off it. That someone was Alan Bailey. He was handpicked for the very first Garda Serious Crime Review Team, and in 2008, he took another look at Charles's case. He too didn't think the initial theory stacked up, 
and while flicking through the original crime scene photos, something jumped out at him. When we revisited, we had the benefit of, as I say, all these years with the forensic advances. We also had a crime scene photographs at the time. They're things very important because they kind of give you your, your picture of what went on or what you, you perceive went on. There's lots of, uh, when, when furniture was moved, there was pools of blood found in certain areas that had been covered over by the furniture. Now, this furniture hadn't been knocked to the ground. It was in place, in situ, for if, if it had been used to cover. There's at least two items of furniture placed back over pools of blood. So but what you, did that suggest to you, Alan, looking back on it? Well, one of the scenarios you must look at, it was at a stage crime scene. Looking at the crime scene photos, Alan found it hard to believe that the possibility of a staged crime scene wasn't explored in 1982. Nowadays, it's one of the first things considered by investigators. Does something look out of place, or has something been moved into place? What happened to Charles looked like a robbery gone wrong, but was it designed to look like that? Furniture had been placed over pools of blood to disguise the true nature of the attack, they revealed it took place in multiple locations, not just one. The positioning of a perfectly intact flower box outside the kitchen window didn't support the initial theory that the killer had escaped through that tiny window. And remember that unidentified fingerprint, the one that was found on the drain pipe outside the kitchen. Back in the day, the detectives were convinced it was the mark of Charles's killer. It wasn't. The cold case unit identified it as having been left by someone who had an innocent and legitimate reason to be at the pipe. Bertie's statements were poured over in 2008, but there would be no follow-ups to them. He died of a heart attack in 1995. He was 80 years old. Again, he was never arrested and never questioned as a suspect in relation to what happened to Charles. Nobody has. It's been 40 years since that bitterly cold January night and while Alan is critical of the initial investigation, he still believes this case can be solved. Well, if I was to be critical of anything, I would say that maybe fixing on the, the man in the taxi as being the sole culprit might have been a mistake. And that's in hindsight and based on what we've perceived to be that have happened at the scene, that he may have been there when they saw the court and caught a stick and ran. I don't want to be part of this. And I always said that if a different approach had been taken and been treated as a witness and asked to come forward to tell us what happened, you know, was there something going on that caused you to panic and run? This man in the description from that taxi driver was in his early to mid-20s, yeah. so he would be in his early in to mid-60s. 60s now, yeah. So that would be helpful if there was a public appeal for this person yeah, to come I, forward. Yeah, I've long, long said that. Do you think there could be a scenario where 40 years ago, with all the public appeals you like, that people might have been too afraid to come forward for well, fear of being... Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Because if I said I was in Barclay Duns or, or Bailey's that night, and I was, all of a sudden I'm a witness, your, your, your friends and your family and all that, you're all wondering, it's opening a can of worms for you. It's never too late to come forward. We found that time and again in the cold case. The people... Divided loyalties, misplaced loyalties, fear, all these things affect people in different ways. So as a pa the passage of time is a great healer. You know, someone you feared for years all of a sudden is no longer a threat. 
the gay community at the time was a very small community and a very close-knit community. They had to be, in fairness to them, they had to be. And it's in the gay community that the knowledge is. Good afternoon, and uh, thank you so many of you for turning out today. On an unseasonably warm, blue-skied and sunny September day, hundreds gathered in Dublin's Fairview Park to remember Declan Flynn. Declan's life meant different things to different people, and the legacy has impacted differently on different people. This marked the 40th anniversary of his brutal murder. We're here to mark the 40th anniversary of the death of Declan Flynn and one of the things we know is that nothing is ever just one thing. Declan was 31 years old and from those who knew him he's been described to me as a quiet, kind, mild-mannered man who adored his family and was just trying to navigate his way through one of the worst times and places for a gay man. He sought comfort in that park but instead came face to face with a visceral hatred that so many other gay men witnessed too. The so-called queer bashers who beat him to death all received suspended sentences. A victory bonfire was lit near the park to celebrate their freedom. And in response, on a much darker day, not far from where we stood today, the gay community decided enough was enough. We realised that many gay people see his killing and the release of his killers as a turning point in their history and we fully understand this. We know that Declan was not alone in the abuse that he suffered. To us, however, he'll always simply be our brother, a young man that was cruelly taken away and can never be given back. Today is about remembering Declan but as the first of three gay men to be murdered in 1982, Charles Self was remembered too. This country was no country for gay men in 1982, and while it's still not the safest or most inclusive of places for the gay community, we've come a long way since. At midnight last night, the Doyle passed the second stage of the bill to decriminalise homosexual acts by consenting adults. The bill would leave homosexuals free to express themselves in personal relationships without the fear of being branded and punished as criminals. To send this message to the world and to LGBT young people in Ireland and across the world, Ireland is the first country in the world to introduce marriage equality by popular vote, is a massive statement. And we haven't just done it by small numbers, it's an overwhelming vote. This is a significant bill that will update our existing legislation on incitement to hatred and will provide for hate crimes for the first time in Irish law. And I think if my election as leader of Fine Gael today has shown anything, it is that prejudice has no hold in this republic. Charles would be 73 years of age now. At 32, he was taken far too soon. He still had so much living to do. It's so sad to think he never got to experience love outside the long shadow of the law. In death, we hope someday he gets the justice he deserves. His friends will keep the pressure on. He'll never stray far from their thoughts. 
and they'll certainly keep his wonderful memory alive. It was almost an event for Charles to come into work. There would be something new to celebrate. There'd be something new to bitch madly about. But it was always entertaining. A lot of the memories I have going back to his house would have been just pals. You know, copious amounts of drink. He loved his pop. And of course, we lived in the absolute decadent pop. Well, Charles was, was always maxed out on the credit cards, you know, and I remember, like, with the bank manager obviously copped on to that, and he said, uh, he called him and he said, Mr. Self, I notice a lot of your checks are written in bars. And Charles just went, hmm. He said, yes, he said, they keep better hours than you do. Charles deserves to be remembered. And he is. They say a man is judged by the company he keeps. Well, if that's the case, then Charles Self was one of the greats. It was a privilege getting to know him through those who loved him. Special thanks to Bill Maher, Alan Farquharson and Christine Falls for sharing Charles with us. And to Alan Bailey, Peter Murta and our own Pat Kenny for giving up their time to help us to tell his story. Finally, it was an honour to hear from Bill Foley, Tony Walsh and Cahill Kerrigan. They fought the good fight and won. Charles's unsolved murder is still a live investigation and we're really confident that someone out there knows something. If you are that person, please contact the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 one. You can also email us at insidethecrime at newstalk.com. It's never too late. In the hope of jogging someone's memory, we've requested the identikit of the mystery man in the taxi and Bertie's sketch of the curly-haired stranger. Angartha Shiakana has received our request, but at the time of recording this podcast, we have yet to receive an answer. All five episodes of Inside the Crime can now be found on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more exclusive content, visit newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashley Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart. Archive audio in this episode was from RTE.